Let's go on to Matthew chapter 13. Passed through some very interesting stuff uh, last week, ending uh, in verse 37. So we're going to begin this time in verse 38. Jesus continues speaking in parables, and and we're going to uh, get nearly through this tonight. Actually, we're, we're in verse 44 also. Chapter 13, verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hides, and for joy thereof goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This parable, again, is one of those that is strangely mistaught because most of the typical teaching from this passage is that the person who is in the field is a lost man seeking a treasure. And the treasure that he finds is the grace of God, and the love of God, and the kindness of God, and the salvation of God. There's just a real problem with that teaching. And so you have to kind of begin to recognize that I have to take this apart a different way. The first and most telling thing here is that lost men don't seek Christ. Someone who is lost does not seek God. We ought to be able to look around us and recognize that, that lost men, lost women, boys and girls look everywhere, try everything except God. Now they may even try religion. They may try church. But the reality is that no person is saved without the preemptive work of the Holy Spirit. Because who is it that will ever bring someone to the reality that they're a sinner and that that sin has a wage attached to it and that that wage is death. Who will bring that truth? Who and who alone can bring the reality of that to my heart? I can walk around this room marching in a circle singing, the wage of sin is death, the wage of sin is death, the wage of sin is death, pronouncing that scripture over and over and over. There's only one who can take that truth and turn it straight and penetrate my heart, and that's the Holy Spirit. There is no salvation without the preemptive work of the Holy Spirit. And that is, a, that is a guarantee. After the Holy Spirit has brought to us the reality of our sinful nature, not just the sin of our life, but that we have a sin nature that has to be addressed, it's also the Holy Spirit then that introduces us to one named Jesus who can save us. Absent those first two things, we're approaching salvation from a wrong heart and that's why, I, and I've shared with you many times, that several years ago, the Lord gave me a vision, the reality, of how many lost people there were sitting in church. And it was shocking. About the same time that I had that vision, that I had that reality hit me, Kendall was still the youth pastor here, and he had ones very similar. But in his, it was much more vivid. Because there was a mound of people that was a mountain high. It was so awful because you could see the features of people in this mountain of the bodies. And he asked the Lord who it was. And the answer was profound. It was those who think they're saved. I want to tell you, it's going to be a strange day. Because when we realize especially as parents, how urgent we were to see our children saved. So we taught them how to go through a process, how to 
with what they were supposed to say, the correct words to say, and if they couldn't say them, we'd say them before them and have them repeat after us, and they never had an encounter with Jesus Christ. They never had the reality of the Holy Spirit to bring the conviction of sin. They never formed the scream in them that demanded a rescue so that the Holy Spirit then could introduce us to a Savior. I want to tell you, there is no salvation outside of the preemptive work of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible teaches it and teaches it and teaches it. And we have maneuvered around that reality with the urgency of having people saved. And they never have had an encounter with Jesus Christ. But they can check this box that says, yes, somewhere back there, I prayed. I might have never truly put my faith instructed with Philip in the, in the eunuch. When the eunuch said, what keeps me from being saved? What was Philip's answer? Believe. How? With all your heart. Jay's sermon, when I wasn't here that Sunday, and his talking about resetting to zero, our zero, our norm that we have strangely lost is that I, I have committed myself, my whole heart in faith to Jesus Christ. It's not partial. It was never designed to be partial. And anybody who can live partially ought to at least have a question raised about what happened in that moment. Because Philip's instruction was very clear. Believe with all your heart. That's our zero. Along with many other things, the reality of the Holy Spirit is our zero. I love what he shared about... We encourage people within the church to get outside of their comfort zone. That ought to be the last thing we teach them. That ought to be the last message that we share because our comfort zone should always be life in the spirit, life in obedience, life listening, life caring, life loving, because the Holy Spirit, the comforter, as he taught, lives in us. My comfort zone is being in Christ. My comfort zone is in that intimate relationship with God, and I should grow uncomfortable when I step out of it. I should live in my comfort zone. I should live in the presence and the reality of the comforter. So we come back to this scripture. So what does it mean if it's not a a simple message of salvation and a man looking for, for salvation for himself? But we begin, again, by recognizing that this is teaching of the kingdom. This is talking about what happens within the kingdom of of God. This isn't a message to lost. This is about kingdom living. This is about kingdom life. So let's start again. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field. Within the scripture, there's only one treasure. Exodus chapter 19. This is God speaking to Israel. God speaking to his chosen people, beginning in verse 5. Exodus 19, beginning with verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Who within this parable is the treasure? Israel. Specifically Israel. Israel is this designated treasure. So this parable, we begin to understand in Matthew chapter 13, this parable that we're looking at here on the board 
is speaking specifically to Israel. and saying to Israel that the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure, Israel, that was hid in a field. Now he told us earlier what the field is. The field is the world. The which when a man has found... So who is the man? Who came seeking Israel? Who came seeking the heart of Israel? Who came seeking the life of Israel? Specifically who? Jesus, the Messiah, came specifically seeking Israel. How do we know? He came unto his own. And what happened? John chapter 1. And his own received him not. What's this parable telling us? Exactly the same thing. That the man walking in the field is Jesus. And he came seeking a treasure. But what happened? It seems so strange. When he found it, why did he hide it? Why didn't he take the treasure out of the field? Because the field, the treasure, wouldn't have him. And so where is Israel still today? Still hidden in the field. Because though he paid to redeem it, he says he found it, he, he hid it, and for the joy thereof, he goes and sells all that he has. What did he take for him to sell all that he had? So that he could redeem them. What did he have to do? He died. He gave his life. That's, that's the price he paid. He sold all that he had. So that he could redeem them. And he buys the field. But notice, he never takes the treasure. Flip over a few chapters to Matthew 21. and verse 43. This is Jesus now speaking to the Jewish leaders, to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees. And he makes this statement in verse 43. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. So he's saying to Israel, my plan for you, the kingdom of God, you had the oracles, you have the prophets, you had the truth. You had the written word, everything that was handed to you so that you could be who I have asked you to be, to bear the fruit that I asked you to bear has now been taken from you. And he declares that at this point that that treasure has been taken from him. And then the, in that next verse, in verse 44, and whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. This is a powerful moment, a powerful shift in the reality of God saying to Israel, you have rejected me, I came unto you, I came unto my own, and my own receives me not. And in John chapter 1 it says, but to everyone who will receive, then they will receive. Go with me now to 1 Peter. I want you to notice something about this coming passage. 1 Peter chapter 2, all of this is amazing let me just begin in verse 1. I'll take the time to read down where I need to. Just too good to find another place. This is Peter speaking to the church. Jesus has been crucified. The Holy Spirit has come. The church has been formed. This is Peter with an epistle to the church. He says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a, a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lively stones, are building up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. 
where also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious. Again, he's speaking to the church, those who have accepted him when the Jews rejected him. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumbled at the word being disobedient, speaking of Israel. Whereunto all this we are appointed. And then he shifts by the word but, this conjunction. He's fixing to say something in contrast. He's just spoke of the Jews. Now he's speaking this word but. He's speaking to the church. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him which has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. I want to read verse 9 again. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does that sound amazingly like? That is almost word for word, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6, where he's telling Israel, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. He tells them that. But what word is missing out of this description to the church? The word treasure. We do not hold that position of being his treasure. So where does that leave us? Go back now with me to Matthew chapter 13. And into verse 45. This is not a repeat by any means of 44. This is not a restating of 44. 45 says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he has found one pearl of great price, when he sold all that he had and he bought it. Who's he speaking of here? If the man in the first parable was Jesus, the one who came seeking, the one who was searching, who do you think the man searching in this one is? It's also Jesus. This one is unique, though, because when he found the pearl, he sold all that he had, and he bought it. He took possession of it. Who's he speaking of here? Who's this pearl of great price? If the treasure was Israel, who is this pearl of great price? Now notice something about this pearl. Why did he choose a pearl? The first evidence is that the Jews will not have any pearls in their ornamental dress. Many Jews, Orthodox Jews, won't own pearls because they were born in the muck and the mire of the ocean and the Jews have always considered them to be unclean. But notice something else about the pearl. Pearl is formed when a speck of dirt penetrates the side of an oyster. And the oyster, to protect itself from this invasion, will surround the sand with mucus, with blood and water, to form this perfectly round pearl. And at this time, to retrieve the pearl, the oyster had to die. Also, the more you rub a pearl, the more lustrous it becomes. If you split it, it's worthless. 
Who do you think the pearl represents? The church. Absolutely. When Jesus' side was penetrated, when he paid this great price, out came blood and water. One for cleansing, one for holiness, one for, I mean, for salvation. And we began to understand this picture very well. That when he came into his own, according to John chapter 1, and his own, the Jews said no. But to everyone who would believe, everyone who would receive. So we understand here, the first parable is talking about the rejection that Israel had so demonstrated toward the Messiah. What happened after that is that he came searching. As we read in, in Matthew twenty-one forty-three, he says, the kingdom of heaven is being taken from you, and it's going to be given to a people who've never been a people. It's going to be into a new nation that's never been a nation. A group of people who have ne- who's never been formed before. The church, grafted in, is the pearl. A beautiful evidence, a beautiful reality of the fact that Jesus came. He paid a price to redeem Israel. And we read the scripture often. And Jesus would even say it. It's not your time. I came unto my own. You know, he said to the Jew first and then to the Greek. He says it often within, within his teaching. To the Jew first until the Jews rejected him. When did it happen? Matthew twenty-one forty-three says that it was announced that the kingdom of heaven is being taken from you. Because they wouldn't accept him. They wouldn't believe he was who he was designed to be. So what's the relevance for you and I today? Anyone who doesn't believe stands in the same predicament that Israel does. Israel, the Orthodox Israel, not the Messianic Jew, but the Orthodox Jew, has said no to Jesus and doesn't accept him as the Messiah. So they fall into this category of an unbeliever. Not by my terms, but by his. They came to them and they said no. We also read this in Luke chapter 19 when it says, called his ten servants and he gave each one a pound. And he says, but his citizens sent a letter after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. They rejected him. And so the treasure right now is still hidden in the world, waiting on the rapture and waiting on the seven years of tribulation. The last seven years of Daniel chapter 9, of the 490 years that are spoken of there, 483 of them already accomplished. The last seven, we know is the great tribulation, is designed for one purpose. Satan will be defeated, yes. Satan will be overcome in the battle of Armageddon, yes. But that's not the purpose of the seven years of tribulation. The seven years of tribulation are designed for one thing, and that's to win Israel's heart and to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's exactly what will happen in those seven years. There's a little bit more within this, and I'll end with it next week. I don't want to try to get all that covered. This is different teaching on these two parables. But I can assure you, if somebody were to come to me right now and say, the man here is someone who's lost, and for him to become saved, he has to go sell all that he has and buy the treasure? What would we immediately say if somebody believed that they could buy the treasure? It's free. Then you've just removed grace. You've just removed mercy. If you, in any form or fashion, make salvation something you can purchase. 
And so the adjustment that's typically made in this message to combat that phrase is, well, no, you just have to be ready to sell all that you have. He's not going to ask you to. And I want to ask anybody, where is that found within the scripture? Salvation comes because you believe, trust, put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Authority comes through baptism. Salvation comes through trust, faith, and belief in Jesus Christ. And there is no other plan. There is no plan B. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the clarity with which you teach us and bring this reality to us. Knowing, Lord, that you also give us the option to trust you, to be that pearl of great price, knowing, Lord, that the more that we're used of you, the more lustrous we become. Not because we're the pearl, but because of how you use us, what you do through us and what you do in us. So that because we were designed to be the reflection of your glory, to bring attention to the reality of you, the owner of the pearl and not the pearl itself. We thank you, Lord, that you paid that great price for us. And I pray, Lord, we would never forget it. I pray, Lord, we would never forget also that after you paid that price and you defeated death, that you still weren't finished, that you still sent the Holy Spirit so that the salvation that came to us by your death, the redemption that came to us because you gave your life, the regeneration that came to us because you came back to life and overcame death, is still an unfinished story until you sent the Holy Spirit to bring the authority of God that you had to each one of us. Pray, Lord, we would never shorten a story. That we would never make it less than it is. That's the full story. And I pray, Lord, we would never preach or live anything less. In Jesus' name, amen.